Alrighty folks, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world. But nonetheless, you are A-L-I-V-E -E alive and kicking, and you're here with the Grappleman, Matthew Priest, with ramblings of Grappleman. It has been a while since I've done a solo episode here of ramblings of a grappleman which is the intention of this podcast i've been caught up uh, with episodes of gambling of a grappleman my newest uh venture with my good friend nick braxton um elite edition where we recap aew events um that's all elite wrestling for you non-wrestling fans um and that's been a lot of fun. It's been consuming a lot of my time. Those two endeavors, um, sports gambling, new here to Michigan, college basketball really took off. So uh, much like we did during the football season, really brought back the gambling aspect. Um, I had a episode with knockouts and three counts on a UFC event. We missed uh, last month's UFC event, talking about the gambling side of things. But uh, definitely something that I enjoy doing. Um, it, it's fun for me. The sports world, um, all elite wrestling has been fun for me, and being away, I guess, from independent wrestling events, um, a lot of the things I rambled about, fewer and fewer frequent, and I've been rambling a lot about AEW on those shows, so check those out, but recently on Instagram, I threw a feeler out just to see what people wanted to hear me talk about. I got a little bit of feedback on that, uh, a couple topics uh, that I'm going to touch on here today. Uh, notably being uh, father-son wrestling combinations, my thoughts on that, which probably could be an entire episode. Um, I'd have to do some research and and probably educate myself a little bit better, but just wanted to keep it real and go off the cuff with it here today. So we'll talk about father-son wrestling history and combinations. I'm going to dive a little bit into commentary tips. Um, I was asked that since I do do some commentary um, ring announcing I'll dabble into as well there for some tips. Um, someone else had asked about my influences. Uh, it was very vague, so I'll, I'll touch on influences. And last but not least, we're going to talk about back bumps, um, which I guess I'll, I'll lead in with. Uh, they just asked me to talk about that. I'm not sure exactly the context. I didn't reach out. I didn't ask. I'm going to take it as my own interpretation. So for those that don't know the back bump, the flat back bump in uh, pro wrestling is where you see the wrestler, um, it's just basically is, is as is you fall flat on your back, um, arms dispersed out. It's the, the proper technique um, for taking most moves safely. Um, you're taught how to do this in wrestling school and you take more bumps in wrestling school than you should in your most of your career. Um... Based off the person who had sent this in, I think they expect me to have a hot take on this, and maybe this is a hot take. Um, but I feel like the back bump has been overexposed in pro wrestling. It's a um, bit of a, a bit of an issue. Um, I think when the mat to a fan uh, doesn't appear to no longer hurt. Um, we see guys, and this is an evolution of this. Um, you know, the the old Southern territories um, used to have a lot of bumping and feeding, uh, especially early on in a match. You'd see uh, the old Tennessee spot uh, in succession with a you know drop kick, arm drag, body slam, 
um, or arm drag, body slam, drop kick, you know, however that combination would go. And usually when the heel would do it to the baby face first, you know, lock up, you know, hit a, hit a nice little arm drag. Um, I shouldn't say heel. It would usually be like the, um, the veteran, let's just say, or, or the, the, the wily veteran is usually the best time that you apply this mat, uh, that this psychology here. You get a nice little arm drag, and the baby face would sell it. Or the young up-and-comer would sell his arm, sell the bump a little bit. Then, you know, you catch him with a nice little body slam. Um, and, uh, you know, it would be usually a hip toss out of the out of the lockup as well. In there. So you get these three nice little moves out of the lockup. The veteran's getting getting confident. Um, and then usually then the baby face would hit him all quick in succession. So it would be like boom, arm drag, feet up, boom, hip toss, feet up, boom, body slam, feet up again, boom, drop kick, bump out of the ring. And the veteran didn't sell him as much as the the young guy did, the rookie would. Um, it was just a nice little even open to a match with a Tennessee open. But the, it was hot and the crowd would get it. And that was kind of the beginning of bumping and feeding and... You could get away with it back then because then the match was typically slow back down. They'd get into their story. And bumps after that seemingly meant something. Moves meant something. They hurt. They were sold uh, with a lot of vigor. And, and a lot of times when the when the dropkick would hit and the, the veteran would powder, that's when he would try to sell everything. He'd, he'd sell the arm on the floor, adjust his back, his neck, you know, maybe jaw from the dropkick, whatever. He'd sell everything on the floor. Uh, but he would pop right up from those mat quickly, which, you know, he's getting knocked down and you'd get up to fight um so it's not totally unrealistic but through the years uh i think that open and evolution into a comeback where you see bump and feed comebacks with like clothesline clothesline you know big move but but suddenly the mat no longer became painful um to a lot of independent wrestlers and -and up-and-coming wrestlers uh they would just bump and feed and get up and they wouldn't no longer sell the pain of the mat and so and guys were falling on everything, and they were taking these clean back bumps on everything, whether it be a punch or a uh, clothesline or a back elbow or a, um, what's another one, like, that's just very common that you see, a super kick, you know, as opposed to any strike, it seemed like these guys were all taking the exact same bump, um, and a lot of that I think is just overexposure to the business in wrestling school. And you're trying to get noticed. You don't want to have a bad match. You want to do everything properly. Guys not taking chances on selling things realistically and different. Not watching enough tape to see how things were sold. Um, overexposure of moves. But me being ringside at a lot of shows and commentating and ring announcing. And a lot of the boys in the back don't see this because they're planning their match. And they're not seeing every match on the show. But when you see the same match seven times in your with your trained eye or eight times sometimes 12 times throughout the course of a night and the audience if it's the same audience coming to a show they're going to pick up on the psychology and the story uh, a basic outline of a match of a of a shine heat comeback finish um which has become a, a major problem uh to me in pro wrestling is no one's telling stories differently but there are other ways to, to convey your match structure and psychology, kids. But that's just the easiest way to get in, and unfortunately because of the overexposure of the business that everybody's doing it. But the map, mat no longer is dangerous. It no longer hurts. Um, you know, I've heard fans say, well, it didn't knock them out. Well, the point of wrestling match isn't necessarily to knock your opponent out. You just got to incapacitate them for 
three seconds, whether that's a technique of a pin or hitting a move that drives the air out of somebody, um, which a finishing move back in the day used to be a body slam, a, a suplex, a side slam, you know, these moves where you're driving the, the air out of your opponent and then you're putting your weight across their chest and shoulders and they just don't have the energy to kick out. And I think guys would oversell moves too at the end of a match where they take the quote-unquote finishing move and they'd have to lay there dead for three minutes as if it killed them. Not enough tape study there, guys. You get hit with your move. It's supposed to Every move in pro wrestling is just supposed to incapacitate you for three seconds. There are times where you, you want to really get a finish over or get a move over. That's when you lay there dead for a while. And, um, you know, it all comes back to the back bump. You know, you get hit with the drop kick or we'll just say the super kick, which is overexposed. You know, you're getting kicked in the face. Why are you falling the same way you get kicked in the face as you would if you're running off the ropes and getting with a clothesline or a back elbow? And you're snapping down and it's looking clean and stuff. And I used to always say if I got shoved off, um, I used to like to take uh, one of my favorite spots I used to like to do. And, yeah, it didn't feel good. But it would always suck fans into a match was I'd be on the outside of the ring um, for a spot, and then boom, I get shoved into the ring post. Boom, hit the ring post, and then take a quick, hard snap, flat back bump right on the, the ground floor below, the, the tile, the cement, whatever it was, and just boom, splat, because the fans have their feet on that. They're standing it. They know how hard that ground is, and I would do it as if I was slipping on ice, which, again, relatable to fans. They've seen you know, somebody slip on ice. It was a home alone spot is what I call it, and boom, Snap it down, and I would just I'd lay there and sell it as if I cracked the back of my head when I went down and was knocked out unconscious, just one bump on the ground. And I could get a lot out of that and get woozy and get up. And I was taking it with all body, but they, they couldn't tell because of the way I would sell it and snap it down. And they could relate. They knew that that hurt, and it was a good, clean bump. Now, if I got in the ring and every single bump I took looked exactly like how I did on the floor as if I'd hit something and lost my footing and slipped, and snap down real hard, well, it kind of takes away from that now, doesn't it? Not to say that you shouldn't bump clean, because you should take clean flat back bumps. It's safe, and it does look good for the most part, but when you're doing it on every single move and every single thing in the match, so I used to do different cells. I had a triangle man cell. I, you know, it was just different things. You, know, you watch UFC fighters get knocked out or get stunned, get rocked, especially if you're taking a, a punch, or if you're going to bump on a punch or uh, for a comeback. It's like, why are you bumping for punches? Why are you clean back bumping on punches? Nobody falls straight down on their back and gets right up from a punch. If a punch knocks you down, you, you're going to fall differently. Um, so that's my take on back bumps. Um, again, I could probably delve into a whole 30 minutes plus on this topic. But I think the point uh, I'm getting across and conveying here is wrestlers especially. Think outside the box. Um, don't make everything, not every move you take should look the same, especially strikes, especially if you're getting hit. Coming off the ropes, I'm fine. You know, if you're getting hit with a clothesline, if you're on the run and somebody's catching with a back elbow, there's multiple ways you can sell it. You don't always have to take that clean back bump. Um, it's overdone. It's overexposed. Um, and, again, it's, it's sell it. You sell. You know, that's what it really comes back down to. Um, and unfortunately, one guy on a show can kill this for everybody, and that's kind of the problem we're at with pro wrestling is everybody's influenced by all these different types of styles and wrestlers, and the Internet's a great thing for these young wrestlers, but it's also a bad thing because they're seeing these different styles and they're seeing these different moves from all around the world, and they're seeing all these different wrestlers, and um, 
they're hitting finishing moves is at the start of matches and they're not meaning anything and there's there's no purpose and a uh, big part of this podcast is just encouraging people to open their minds and and focus in on that part of pro wrestling uh the mental aspect of it and i would like to see more of that especially on the independent scene um but i digress uh but back bumps i i think they're overdone um they're important it's the most fundamental thing either don't 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 discredit me there they are the most fundamental least sound important thing and anybody with a any scout or anybody out there when you get into a, a class you better be able to take good clean bumps and hard fast and pop, and get up quick and properly um that should be hammered in you in wrestling school and that's for your own safety uh but once you're in a match and you're a seasoned veteran and you know how to bump you you, you shouldn't be taking as many in your match um another thing that i think hurt the back bump and i'm going to just touch on this a little bit is the superplex um, again, it comes where the mat no longer hurts these guys. As a you see a superplex, and both guys are landing flat on their back. From you know the one guy's back is a little bit higher uh, than the other dudes, um, and the other guy is driving them down to the mat. But a lot of guys would hit a superplex and pop their feet, or you know the Seth Rollins would roll through, hit a falcon arrow, and the guy kick out and just completely bastardize both moves, which are finishing moves, and they absolutely mean nothing. And it would drive me insane every time he would do that. Because you're not selling the Super Plus, and you're not selling the Falcon Arrow, um, and just a Suplex in general. You, you know, the guy doing the Suplex a lot of times is taking kind of a bump, and if you don't sell that, um, that's a problem. And I've always stressed this on this podcast, and when I talk to young talent, when I would train people, is sell your offense. You know, if this is a real fight, you punch someone for real in real life, which many pro wrestlers nowadays haven't, where pro wrestlers from back in the day all had you would know that your fist usually hurts after you punch somebody in the head. It might not in the heat of the moment, but at some point, you throw seven, eight punches, your hand is going to hurt. Sell your freaking hand. You chop somebody. Sell your sell your hand. Um, headbutts, especially. Sell your head. I mean, you're using your head as a weapon. Um, I always encourage that. And then if you're doing a suplex, you know, boom, you land. It doesn't hurt to grab, clutch at your back and be like, ooh, that hurt me too, but I'm still, you know, I'm okay. I'm getting up. I'm going for the pin. Um, selling offense, uh, to me, separates um, really, really good wrestlers from the pack. Um, if you're on a show and you've got 20 wrestlers on it, um, and I've seen the talent firsthand, I, I will notice when guys sell their offense. If you, if you do an offensive move and you sell the repercussions of that, that it hurt you as well, that, that always stands out to me. Um, whenever I see a pro wrestler do that. So I was going to jump into the next topic here. I am going to get into the father-son combinations. Um, throughout history, I mean, second, third, we're a third, a lot of third-generation wrestlers. Now I think there's even some fourth generations out there in the pro wrestling business. Um, father-son wrestling combination, it's been around forever. Now you have a lot of father-daughters, uh, especially out there. I haven't come across a mother-son yet. That combination I don't think quite exists, but give it time, uh, especially with women wrestling being a big on the rise in the last um, 20 years and especially the last 10 and even more importantly the last five it has boomed. So I don't think we're far away from too many um, mother-son combinations. I guess you could say like uh, you know Soraya Knight and um, 
you know, and then that, of course that led to, to Paige and, and her brother both being wrestlers. I'm talking about high profile. Uh, yeah, they did have a movie fighting with your family. I still have not seen that movie. It has been in my watch list for like two years, and I just have not gotten gotten the gusto to watch it. But um, I guess uh, the son there, I think his name's Nick. Could be wrong on that. Zach. I think it's Zach. Zach. Nick was the the dad. Nick, Zach, I believe, is the Paige's brother and Soraya's son. So you have that that there. So I do digress a little bit, but. As far as on a WWE or a, a, you know even AEW at this point or TNA or any combination there, and I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, please correct me. If there's a, a mother son combination out there that's been highly pro, uh, profiled uh, and prolific uh, that I may have missed, and my apologies if uh, that's the case because it's probably staring me right in the face. I'm sounding like an idiot here, but uh, when you get really into the father son and, and the father daughter, I mean it's it's hard to not look at like the big the big names first so you know probably most famously uh you have like dusty Rhodes with uh dustin and uh cody uh dustin of course went on i mean he's been going for 30 years now since 91 dusty was a huge 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 star throughout the 70s and 80s um dustin's had quite the career in the early 90s wcw moving in a gold dust for a long stretch of his career now in AEW, uh closing things out um, back as Dustin Rhodes with really you know a lot of the the, the look of Goldust um, in a sense and you know the evolution of of him as a performer but uh, Dusty was world champion charisma one of the best minds this business has ever seen an influence of mine which I'll get into later on Dustin Rhodes extremely smooth worker a little bit different than Dusty um, in that sense uh, he was a guy who was like much taller six six by two sixty. A little leaner, a little taller, smoother worker. Dust Dustin was worked a lot more like Barry Windham when you watch like a, a, a younger Barry Windham in the early '80s. Like Dustin reminded me more of a Barry Windham than his dad with the way he worked and wrestled. Um, and then you know he evolved that into the gimmick of Gold Dust and the character behind it and the performance and what he put into that was absolutely phenomenal. Um, you know, the, especially the early Gold Dust work. And yeah, he had some outside of the ring issues. Um, you know the, the strain relationship is Dusty's document uh, DVD documentary. I think it's on the WWE Network. Well, Peacock now. Hopefully, they transition all that stuff in there. Uh, really touches on the 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 backstory of those two, um, and then Cody, uh, of course, is now one of the probably five top five most influential people in the pro wrestling business in 2021. As we sit here, definitely top ten. Um, he's an executive vice president for the number two promotion in the United States, that being AEW, which is a worldwide promotion as well. Um, but he's getting the mainstream exposure. He just had the match with Shaq. He has done the ta- the, the TV show, uh, the big game show, and now he's got like a reality show with his wife Brandy coming out. He had damn near a decade of television exposure with WWE, more so than the other EVPs. Uh, so Cody is the bigger main, biggest crossover star AEW has um and being an executive vice president with the the vision and who his dad is and the connections that the old um the old guard of Turner probably still still recognizes him as a kid and, and knowing he's Dusty's kid and especially down there in the south he has that respect so you have that combination there uh, all three very different all three excellent um top tier uh performers 
and competitors. Um, and I will go to one of probably Dusty's biggest rival, Ric Flair. Uh, his son David got into wrestling a little bit. His son Reed was getting into wrestling a little bit. Uh, David, it just wasn't for him. He's said it numerous times. I mean, he played his character well in WCW. But those are big shoes to fill, and for someone who wasn't a, uh, an athlete growing up, David wasn't that big of an athlete growing up and wasn't a huge wrestling fan. He was just his own kid, and he was just, you know, he was really young, and and just, hey, he's the son of, he's the son of Ric Flair, for crying out loud, so, you know, he's, he's going to do what he's got to do. Um and he had a he had a nice little run there in WCW doing the different character doing stuff with Daphne um, and Stacy Keebler, so it was good on him to do that. But he just it, he wasn't his dad and he wasn't a great uh, wrestler. And I think he'd be the first to admit it. Uh, Reed could have had a ton of potentially great amateur wrestler. Uh, unfortunately, he just died so young. Um, he was in the developmental system. I believe it was still FCW at the time with WWE when he was in there. So he didn't really even get to have much of a career. But his daughter, Ashley, uh, Charlotte Flair, has just become maybe the best women's wrestler uh, we have seen um, ever. And, and breaking history, much like her father did as, as main eventing WrestleMania, many times she's had the championships. Hard for her to have a bad match. She she is excellent. Um, very good at what she does. We'll see how her career pans out. Uh, she's hitting to that weird point in her career where she's getting into her probably seven years of TV at this point. She's getting into her 30s now. Um, it's different between male and female performers, um, unfortunately, when they get into that age because a lot of women wrestlers seemingly are, are retiring around the age of 40 from the past. The old guard that was, where a lot of guys would get closer to fifty. Um, different body types, different um, training. Women's wrestling was definitely more of a gimmick, uh, even ten years ago, um, as opposed to the impact that it has had since then, where it's taken a lot more seriously. It's a lot more respected, and the the females, I mean, for a couple of years, have had the best match on WrestleMania. Uh, overall, guys, girls, doesn't matter. If the females have gone out there and performed, they've tore it up. So Charlotte definitely being a key performer in that regard of, of having sometimes the best matches of the night. Uh, you can't take any credit away for, for them. I mean, Ric Flair, arguably the greatest of all time. Um, you know, definitely throughout the late 70s and the 80s, Ric Flair was just uh, a machine in the ring, hard to... Very hard to find a bad Ric Flair match in that span. Uh, famous, famous rivalries. A lot of that had to do with the, the TBS television exposure and the territories he worked in, whether it be um, Mid-Atlantic, uh, JCP, or Georgia Championship Wrestling, wherever it was at, Flair was always on TBS uh, with the boom of cable there. And then when he finally got to WWF in 91, um really launched him to a wider audience uh, through the WWF machine that was. People, wrestling fans knew who Ric Flair was. Casual wrestling fans were familiar with the name, but until he got there, he was seen by more eyes on a wider scale and bigger markets. Uh, uh, people knew who he was. I'm not saying he didn't, but wrestling fans knew, knew who Ric Flair was. It was wrestling fans, not your 
um, not your um, uncle's uncle's uncle or whatever. I don't know. Um, the casual, the, the the bandwagon fan, if you will. Like they've heard the name, they probably seen pictures of them, but they wouldn't have been able to tell you as much about Ric Flair as they could have Hulk Hogan, especially in those bigger cities like New York, uh, the Northeast, Boston, um, even even uh, some cities like I'd say like Seattle um, and Portland and, and San Francisco, which had rich wrestling histories, and Flair went out out to those cities as the champion of the NWA, but. It was different when your uh, Saturday Night's Main Event exposure crowd of the Hogan era just appealed to a different range of audience, especially with kids, too. Ric Flair didn't really appeal to kids, and kids didn't really know much about him until his WWF run. But nonetheless, the guy's, again, top five all-time, maybe the best all-time, depending who you talk to. And Charlotte's right up there. Um, hopefully she can go down in the same category. She should have a little bit of a bright, bright future ahead of her. Um, other father's sons that come to mind, of course, um, you know, you got the, the Samoan family, which could just get its whole podcast on their own. I mean, that all comes back to like Afa and, you know, Sika, you know, the wild Samoans and it just lineages, lineages down and out. I'm not going to go through the whole, um, Anoia family tree, but you've got Roman Reigns on top now. He's uh, Sika's son, um, Afa's kids. Uh, you know, you had Manu, um, who was Afa Jr. Um, oh my God, I'm drawing blanks on all of the. You, know, you had the, you know, Fatu, Samu, were in, in the family line. You had the Usos there. Uh, you know, another Samoan dynasty out there. You've got uh, Mang or Haku, however you know him. With his sons, the Grill is a Destiny in New Japan. They're an awesome group. Billy Gunn, longtime performer WF, with his kids in AEW, the Gun Club, which are currently on TV. Uh, I can't forget about Randy Orton. Talk about one of the best of all time. Hard to hard to not put Randy Orton up there near the top of that list if he's not the top on your list. Uh, hard to keep him out of anybody's top ten. And uh, what a career he's had. And he's a third generation guy with. Um, you know, his dad, Cowboy Bob Orton, in the 80s, a rival of Hogan, and his, you know, Barry O, great-grandpa. Um, I was talking about the third generation. Speaking of third generation, of course, you have The Rock, uh, part of that Samoan family tree as he gets, as, as that goes. His dad, Rocky Johnson, grandfather, uh, High Chief Peter Maivia. So, you know, the, the Rock uh, much did much had much more success than his dad, Randy Orton, much more success than their parents. Um Oh, yeah, I could go on and on. Like, this is probably so. This probably could get its own podcast out of it. Trying to cram it all in here. I know I'm forgetting a ton of guys. I'm excited to see what Wayne Bloom's kid turns out to be. He's in uh, WWE development right now. I believe his name's Cal Bloom. Not sure what his gimmick name is going to be yet. He might have one. He might not. I don't know. I'm a little bit behind the times on that. But even a guy like Bret Hart, my favorite wrestler as a kid growing up, he was a second generation guy. Uh, with Stu and his brothers and his families and the families of wrestling. The Guerreros, multiple generations there. Chava was a third-generation wrestler. Uh, Chava Jr., that is. So, um, you know, the Guerreros have a long lineage of it. You literally get into the, the families as as well. So many of them in there. Um, now you have Dominic Mysterio with Rey Mysterio. Um, uh, they're teaming up, which is really cool to see the father-son tag team dynamic. Rey... Um, you know, in his early 40s, well, maybe mid-40s now at this point, Dominic in his early 20s, so you've got a nice dynamic there. The father-son hopefully gives Dominic a good rub. 
uh, from his dad, and he's he's holding up to his own. He's definitely inexperienced. He's definitely green, but he kid goes out there and busts his ass, and and he doesn't he doesn't phone it in, and you know you, you don't know what the future is for Dominic Mysterio, but he's he's done a heck of a job given the situation he's been put into. Um, once we get live crowds back and he's out there performing, I would not be shocked if he was getting a little bit of the nepotism booze, but, but we'll see. Um, speaking of nepotism, hard to, hard, can't, hard to talk about pro wrestling without the McMahon family and Shane and his dad could polar opposites of the way they work in the ring, but just have that erratic style. And, you know, Shane kind of in a way, third generation, uh, Vince Sr., really fourth generation, because even Jess McMahon was a boxing promoter now. It's on the promoter side of things. Stephanie, you can throw in there as well. She did wrestle too. Um, like I said, it could go on and on with this as I talk, and you, you just find a wrestler. He probably has some ties, especially this day and age, to the business. Um, you know, Flying Brian Jr. just popped in my head. Um, you know, with his dad, Brian Pillman, passing away, and Flying Brian Jr. Uh, hopefully, he, he's got some pretty big shoes to fill, and. Um, you know, hopefully the kid gets his head on straight. Uh, being an AEW and, and being used in the role he's being used, I think is good for him. It's humbling him up quite a bit um, and, and making him earn it and work the hard way. And hopefully he stays there for a little while and continues to be humbled. And I know he was a big Kenny Omega fan, probably his favorite wrestler and big influence getting in. So being in the locker room with him is probably a good thing for him to uh, just keep um, paying his dues, if you will, and if he sticks with it, he, he has the athletic ability. He's got the um, the lineage to really turn into a big star. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting, uh, oh, the Rotundos and the Wyndhams. I, I mentioned them earlier, but, I mean, Bray Wyatt, Bo Dallas, Mike Rotundo, um, you know, Barry Wyndham, uh Blackjack Mulligan, I mean, that's all in the same family tree there, and that's a hell of a family tree. Uh, Bray Wyatt being a uh, WWE champion, Universal champion, uh, all gimmick, very much different from them. Um, and it's funny because the gimmick he started doing was actually inspired by Blackjack Mulligan when he started morphing into this Bray Wyatt character after the Husky Harris deal. Um, he, he was wearing the black glove, and he had like the, the you know he came out with like the the he wrestled in like the pants and, a, and a, he almost had like the the horror movie gimmick going on but he had like a quiet riot metal health like a jason mask when he came out but he was kind of doing like a black it was an homage to his grandfather um of the blackjack mulligan uh, type of matches he was using the claw for a minute there then he his foley influence came in his taker influence he, he spun it made it his own character but alice was a lot more like his uncle barry um in the way, because uh, IRS, Mike Rotundo, Mary Barry Wyndham's sister. Uh, that's how they're related there, for those of you who didn't know. And, and Bodell's had more of that style to him, that vibe and that body type. Um, and But he was so much like his dad, too, with the way he moved. Um, but he had that, that fluidity, much like Barry Wyndham. There's another second-generation guy who moved smooth. Randy Orton also moved real, real smooth. Um, so... A handful of guys there I've, I've, I've thrown out with the, the second generation and the families. The Funks is another one um, that comes to mind. Apophos with Randy Savage. I mean, like I said, as I just sit here, a guy pops in my head, and I could go on and on and on forever. Uh, the last guy I'll talk about, Harry Smith, Davy Boy Smith's kid. 
Um, I guess Cody Hall, too, Scott Hall's kid. Both those guys have bright future. Well, Cody Hall probably a little bit brighter future because he's on the younger side, but he's got the size. Uh, but D.H. Smith, Harry Smith, however you know him, um, hopefully he gets a, another mainstream uh, opportunity here uh, within the next year or two. Um, he's at the, probably the peak age. Um, you know, 35 is typically when male pro wrestlers have their best earning years because uh, they're established. They know how to get over. They know it works. They know it doesn't. They're seasoned enough. Um, and they're a grown, believable, physical man. Uh, they don't look like a kid anymore. And a lot of that all just kind of comes up to perfect uh, television age. And they look great for TV. So he's there and uh, we're almost there, right around there. And, and hopefully that leads to a, a real good career out of him. Um, because right now, I would say his dad's had a better career. Um, I, could, I almost forgot Natty with uh, Jim Neihardt in there. Like I said, he could go on and on forever with these second generation, third generation. Now we're getting into f- some fourth generation cats out there competing. So it's awesome for the business. It makes it harder for those who don't have it in there. But, um, you know, they're all pretty good. Ricky Steamboat's kid uh, had some injuries, but I would have loved to see his future. And I think Steve Carino, here I go again, Steve Carino's kid, uh, I believe is uh, he's under contract as well, training, if I'm not mistaken. I know he's had some in-and-out opportunities through programs. Um, speaking of ECW, guys, Taz, this kid is on AEW as well, hook with him. So it's almost never-ending. Anybody who was a wrestler uh, before the year 2000, seemingly their son, has uh, gotten into the wrestling business in the last 20 years. Um, we'll see what continues to happen out of that because it's going to be an ever-going thing. Uh, I, I alluded to some of my influences as I was throwing names out there earlier. One of my biggest influences uh, was Bret Hart. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about my wrestling influences first. So Bret Hart was probably the he was probably my favorite wrestler as a kid. I tried to emulate his punches and his storytelling, and a lot of what Bret Hart did. He, he sucked me in, captivated me as a performer. Um, another guy who did, which was weird as a kid because he was a bad guy, but I just liked his style of wrestling was Arn Anderson. I uh, liked, you know, he reminded me of my dad, uh, him with the way he looked, and he just looked like someone's dad. Um, so he was believable in that context. He was going to go out there and just kick somebody's ass. Um, but the way he moved, the way he sold, uh, his psychology and his promos really set him apart to me. And even as a kid, something about him just, just drew me in as like, I like this guy. As a, I like the way he, he wrestles and, and works which I didn't know it was called then back then, but I just liked his watching his matches. Um, so Arn Anderson, another big influence on me. Bob Holly was a big influence on me uh, as a kid, another one of my favorites. And uh, again, kind of a rough and tough guy, but his style was believable. And once you saw past the gimmick, uh, whether it was Thurman Sparky Plug, Spark Plug Holly, Hardcore Holly, whatever it was, you know, the guy was a pretty good technical wrestler, had a hell of a dropkick, his chop, of course, but like he knew how to tell a story. And he knew how to work. And those kind of believable style appealed to me. Um, it was the guys who sold realistically. And that that went a long way with me. Uh, the guys who oversold stuff like Flair, like Sean, like even Waltman, who was terrific. One, two, three kids and stuff. He was just small and oversold. Owen Hart, loved him. Oversold a little bit for me. I also liked Bob Backlund, Greg Valentine. Uh, Valentine became an influence a little bit on my style. But Bob Backlund uh, and Nick Bockwinkle. 
more on the character side of things. Bob Backlund, Nick Bockwinkle, uh, on the character side of things were two of my biggest influences for having a character, having a gimmick. Um, Bockwinkle, especially on my promos. You know, I tapped into Arn Anderson there a little bit with the promos. Uh, William Regal, another guy who I who I was really inspired by as a wrestler, um, and 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 tried to add a little bit of his uh, facial expressions into my work. Uh, I thought he had great facial expressions with the way he sold stuff and really could could you know hunch hunch you in. And I learned how to work smaller. Um, if you're if you're a baby face and you're bigger than your opponent. Uh, Watching Regal, the few times he was a bigger babyface, learn how to like make himself look smaller, more demeaning, and and there was a lot of little things in body language I, I took from him, um, and then of course his technical wrestling ability was always something I was a big fan of. Um, you know, um, those were probably my biggest influences on the wrestling side of things. Um, Benoit a little bit too, as much as it's weird to hear people say probably but um you know dynamite kid benoit i was more familiar with benoit's work than dynamite kid i only seen a little bit of a kid's work at that time uh with this stuff in wbf um and then through tapes as i was a late teenager just getting to get in the business you start to see more of the, the stuff that was harder to find um but that was pretty much it as a wrestler. Those were my guys. Uh, I really had Bobby Eaton a lot too. And when I would train people, I'd tell people to study his lock, his lockups. So, you know, I thought he was a good guy to learn from. He always had good lockups, good punch, good, good fundamentally sound technical wrestlers. Uh, so I gravitated to. And then, you know, what I got as a fan, there were guys I liked throughout the years. But once I started getting into wrestling and understanding the business. Um, and the performance side of wrestling, I went to guys I more or less liked as a kid, um, and not so much as a teenager, because the, the reason I liked them as a kid because they were so fundamentally sound, so technical, and they had a l- different type of performer that I wanted to be, as opposed to, you know, the Lance Storms, or like the Novas, or these guys that were also technically good, but were just doing a lot more moves, and a lot more athletics, um... That wasn't so much me uh, once I got into the business. And even like your RVDs or your Tajiris, like my big ECW phase in the the Attitude Era, if you will. Um, Christian is another guy I would say I took a lot from in the ring. Um, uh, Christian, uh, big influence on me, actually. Well, I used to study quite a few of his his matches. But outside of the ring, I also had a lot of heavy influences, uh, especially on the commentary and the ring announcing side of things. Um, Jim Ross probably is my biggest influence on all pro wrestling, whether it be an in-the-ring performer or a commentator. Uh, I would be remiss without saying like the Jim Ross uh the more I learned about him, the more I became inspired by him. Um, in a sense, I thought he was great at commentating. He brought a lot of emotion um, to matches, made a lot of big moments. Uh, but the guy's just so smart with the way he talks about the pro wrestling business, where I've really grown to appreciate him there. Paul Heyman, of course, from a booking mindset. Um, hard to not put Jim Cornette in there as well. Uh, I happen to have recently discovered that I have a lot of similar viewpoints to Jim Cornette, uh, which I don't know how I feel about that. But I think it's just going back to the fundamentals of pro wrestling and 
um, and seeing something that you love being disrespected without knowing it's being disrespected is the best way I can put it by performers not understanding the pro wrestling business and not at their own fault um, but just not how you would wish they had learned it and it's just become overflown and uh, you, I think for him he sees the history of the evolution of pro wrestling not going in a direction that's um, that he's proud of so keeping that a little bit more open mind but Cornette I think had some really good fundamentals uh, with his booking and a great promo as well in his own right uh, Heyman of course JR uh, Vince hard, hard to not go with the big guys as, as being um, influences on me um, but JR on the commentary side, but probably my biggest way I, who I take from the most is, is, uh, I mean, Gene, um, with his interviewing style, I try to adapt that into my commentary. Uh, I got the alrighty folks from mean Gene, um, that'll always say, um, I think the, uh, the alive and kicking, uh, used to just be live and kicking, but I was told I can't do L-I-V-E in pro wrestling anymore, so I gotta go with A-L-I-V-E. Uh, alive and kicking's actually a non-point song, that's where I put the and kicking on it, but Doc Hendricks, uh, which was Michael Hayes' character in WWE, so he's come on the air and be like, we are L-I-V-E, live and in living color here, with whatever it was, Bruce Pritchard does it as well, and that's actually who's got the L-I-V-E, uh, trademarked. So I can no longer do the L-I-V-E, so I threw the A in front of it, so it's alive and kicking like the non-point song and kind of make it my own with that inspiration. Um, but Al Michaels, commentator, do you believe in miracles? Yes. Uh, the guy can do all sports in any sport. Huge fan of his. Joe Buck, also a big fan of his, can do any sport. Because those guys, and what I learned with them and with, uh, with JR especially, and even Vince... Is those guys could set the table, they for is what is what I call it. They set the stage. They create the opportunity for a major moment to happen. And pro wrestling is a little easier, especially if you know a big moment's coming up. So think of it as you're having a big big family dinner coming to your house. So you're setting the table. You're setting everything up. You're, you want to make sure you've got the right amount of knives and forks and plates and cups and you, you, your the tablecloth needs to be perfect and the right amount of chairs and you're you're setting everything up so that when everyone gets there and they're sitting at the table that main dish comes of the food and there nobody has to get up from the table no one there's no there's no confusion. They know what they're getting. You, you're setting up, and then when the food goes, oh, you get the moment of, oh, here's the big Thanksgiving dinner. Here's the turkey. Or, you know, they're popping for every every uh, entree and um, appetizer that, that comes to them. That's what an announcer's job is, for lack of a better word. It's just, just setting that up. You're setting that environment up. And then the, the moves are kind of the appetizers, and the talent is the entree. Uh, for the story around it, and and you just want the audience there, sitting at the table, sitting in the crowd, um, and you're using your vocal skills to create a situation for them to digest uh, what they're about to eat. Uh, it's a good way to put it, I think. 
I just kind of made that up as I was talking aloud. But um, understanding pro wrestling um, for an announcer, and it's not about the moves. Um, I think I think it's important to a certain fan base, the diehard wrestling fans. They want to know the names and moves and stuff like that. But the moves aren't so important for a wrestling commentator or any commentator in any sport. Um, the best announcers in sports can call any sport doesn't matter what it is whether it be pro wrestling whether it be uh hockey or basketball or golf you know you gotta have a lot of respect for jim nance if not personally he's not my flavor he's not my cup of tea but jim nance does everything he does football he does golf he does basketball uh there's there's him announcing track and field I mean, like as a as a good announcer, you understand that your job is to set the stage. You're to create the moment. You're to set that moment up. Um, Baylor winning the national championship tonight in college basketball. A won me a lot of money. Listen to Gamlin with a grappleman. They were my pick the whole way. Two. Um, it's just the moments that get set up by great lead announcers. Um, you've got your play-by-play guy, uh, who sometimes the lead announcer has to double as the play-by-play guy. But you don't need to call every move. You don't need to call arm drag, hip toss. If you're if you're by yourself and you're uh, calling a match solo, that's when you can call the moves. Uh, when you're by yourself, because you're you're not talking about anybody and you're just trying to get that over to the audience. So if you're calling a move by yourself, you're reacting. Uh, you shouldn't be a, uh, You should be reacting to the moves that happen too. Um, that's a big part of of announcing in pro wrestling. I think is react to what you see. As if you're uh, surprised by what you see. Now, not everything needs to be a major, huge, over-the-top reaction. But if there's a punch, it's like, ooh, that right hand really caught him in the jaw there. Like, you didn't say he punched him. um, Or a big punch by Joe Machine. You could come across and say, oh, Machine really landed that one. I'll be rearranging his chiclets later. Oh, come on. Get out of there. It's a blatant chokehold. Like, you're reacting to what they're doing um, in a sense. Then you can say what they did um, or why you're reacting the way you are. But I think that's the hidden the hidden secret to, to commentary um, in wrestling. When you've got a crew and you've got people to play off of, whether it be, be two others or um, just one other, that makes it easier too because um, – Everybody has their different influences, too, and you have to keep an open mind to that. Everybody's coming to the table with a different mindset when they want to be an announcer. It's just finding that chemistry with them. Um, I feel like I'm pretty well-versed. I've done play-by-play. I've done lead announcing. I've done color um, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of matches, maybe thousands total. Uh, I've, I've called a lot of wrestling on the independent level in my day and i i do enjoy it it's something i would like to do more of that and refereeing i would love to do more of um it's kind of where my passions for the business line up because i feel like a lot of commentators go out there to try to get themselves over um the only chance the only opportunity you have to get yourself over is your first 30 seconds and that's while you're setting the stage it's getting your name over say who you are say what you're doing if you got a little catch, cute catchphrase get it in there but once once the table's set, it's all about serving the food. And 
and dealing that. And um, a lot of times those big moments, it's it's fine to lay out. And that's also very hard for commentators knowing when to lay out. Yeah, um, I think I touched on everything here. Uh, I think I got into the commentary tips as well for my commentary influences. Um, you know, Joey Styles was an influence, and like that's why I say like calling the moves uh, when you're solo. Uh, I liked Shivani. I thought Shivani was a good table setter. Mike Tanay always annoyed me calling the moves, even though I would learn what the moves were through Tanay. I would learn what the moves were through Joey Styles as well. But um, I, he's lacked that emotion, and Shivani was a good table setter. I really appreciate a good table setter. Those in color guys, um, color being a color commentator was a little difficult for me because like my sense of humor is very in person and dry. Uh, I'm not like a joke teller, so from around a group of people, I can slide in some people who know me well, some callback reference type of humor. That's um, real dry delivery, sarcasm, but that's hard to convey through commentary. So I don't, I don't have a joke book like Jim Cornette or Jerry Lawler or Bobby Heenan or Jesse Ventura in that heel color commentator role, which is there for the haha, um, which has really kind of evolved into more of a uh, with the three man booth that that color guy has kind of evolved into more of a reactionary person. Uh, to add to the color like it's less about jokes and more about um, reacting and using um, what are those called oh my god I'm drawing a blank here no I, I have completely drawn a blank on what the point I was trying to make I apologies there folks but um, but yeah, that's that's kind of the evolution of a commentary. But my biggest my biggest tip for commentary is stay in the reactionary role. Don't don't call the match to. I, I guess the best way to describe it is know your audience, know who's going to be um watching the match that you're calling. But at the same time, you have to still have the mindset that there's someone watching could watch this for the very first time who has no idea what's going on so while it might seem redundant and repetitive uh you still have to call the match with the two entities in the ring or more where you're you're putting the focus on them because you're trying to get them over to someone who has no idea who they were your job is to get the talent over so you're trying to get whoever the, the participants in the match are over um, the story and the moves and what the guys do, you're conveying to the audience that you normally have. But it's important to establish who these guys are, what they're fighting for. Um, and, and a big part of me is when you get a good match going on and you can do a nice little reset in the middle of it. Um, again, that set it, it, it. I call it setting the stage, setting the table, especially if it's a championship match. And you've got, you know, your your two guys have fought hard, and you're at that that um, which is so cliche now. The double down into the booyah punch spot, um, very cliche spot. But as a commentator, I love that spot because usually that double down is a good opportunity to be like, you know. Ladies and gentlemen, both these competitors have given you everything they have. They are down, neither man getting to their feet yet. 
This is for the Wrestling Heavyweight Championship. The title that means so much to both these men. Who is going to get to their feet first? Which man is going to get to their feet first? Oh, who, who, who's... Joe Machine is stirring. He's moving. He's he's getting to the ropes. He's crawling his feet up. Oh, my God. If he gets to his feet first, the advantage is going to go to Machine. The championship on the line here, ladies and gentlemen. Can Machine get it done? He is challenging. Jeepers Monroe. And Jeepers Monroe, the champion. It's gut check time for him. I mean, it's just a moment like that. I mean, I just kind of went into something there. I was trying to make it up off the top of my head. Um, and old Jeepers Moreau and Joe Machine, uh, what a cl clash of titans there um, for the championship. But, uh, again, it's evolution of the business has changed a lot. And as a commentator, it's changed a lot. And people want to see, um, see moves, and they want to hear what moves are called. But that's for video games, man. Um, your job is for the people watching this match Again, they might not know who the hell these guys are. Um, so get the talent over. Don't get the moves. Don't worry about getting yourself over. Get the talent over. Um, a real, real good commentator will get the talent over. Um, to someone who's never seen those guys before. That's the best way I can describe it. Um, and yeah, but... I don't really have much else to say here. Uh, I've talked about... Let me make sure I got everything. I talked about the father-son combinations. My influences a little bit. Uh, ring announcing influences. Um, even though I was real harsh on them on the last Elite Edition with Justin Roberts. was an influence to me. Um, young guy, big voice. Uh, had some charisma and character, which I felt was important. Um, you know, I took a little bit of elements from him. Uh, didn't really, I, I love Fink. Fink might be my favorite ring announcer ever, but I didn't really take much from him. Gary Michael Capetta uh, was kind of my main influence guy with Bruce Buffer from the UFC. So a little bit of Capetta, a little bit of Bruce Buffer, a little bit of Justin Roberts. You take the three of those, and those were kind of like the guys that I patterned my ring announcing style after. Um, flow of the show is important. As a ring announcer, you're quarterback in the show. Uh, that's how I always view it and look at it. You're on the time schedule. You're keeping track of the time. If the show's going short... Um, you know, fill if the show's going long, cut. Um, it's that simple. Uh, you can help enhance a match between matches. I always liked having a sidekick partner, Matt Bishop and Clash Wrestling, Nick Andrews, MCW down in Ohio. Those were my two favorite sidekicks, Matt Bishop, and I. I love working with Matt Bishop. Shout out to old Matt Bishop if you're listening to this. Um. We'll have to get together and, and do a, do one of these one day, Mr. Bishop. But uh, great to play off of. Understands his role, understands his character. And he's the guy who didn't wasn't really like trained as a pro wrestler. Didn't come up in it. He's just a fan. But he's a he has radio background. And he understands the pro wrestling business. That's thing he was trained. But you know he kept his mouth shut and his ears open when he was backstage. Learned how things. He studied put a lot of work in studying and brought that journalism background that he had to the business. So when we would get out in the ring, we could play off of each other. He using his influences, my influences, fun to play off of. Um, but it's about getting the story of the show over, getting the talent over again and doing it to a live audience. We kind of created a dynamic there that was different because again, the fans, 
they might not have been at the last show. They might not know what's going on. They don't know who the talent are. So you're really trying to get the, the matches over, and you're trying to put hype on it. Because um, if a fan's there for the first time, um, and you're hyping up the show at the start of the show, you can really hype up a match and get fans who've never, who have no idea who these guys are uh, using, you know, uh, talking to Clash, we'll just say, uh, we'll just say Elk and uh, Tommy Tresnick, for example. If they're going to wrestle, we can really hype that match up at the top of the show and get fans excited to see that match later on. They might not know who the hell either guy is, but they've heard the name Elk, they've heard Tommy Tresnick. We can give it 15 seconds of pre-show time to put a little bit of hype and steam behind that match and, and, and make someone who's never been to a show before want to see it. And Bishop did a great job of that. And again, fun to play off of. When we had time on the show, we could play off each other. Uh, there was a few times where he could get under my skin a little bit um, and and, and uh, inexperienced wrestling and me being serious wrestling guy. And then there was times where it was just fun to play off of and it was 100% working and people thinking we're really mad at each other. Even the boys in the back are like, you guys, what are you guys doing? Are you guys gonna fight out there like hey man it's just it's, it's sometimes you know the the moment heat of the moment type of stuff but love working with matt bishop long time talking about him on here and else podcast too much time for matt bishop probably but um nonetheless thanks for listening to this episode of rams of grappleman like subscribe uh on the i the apple app the google spotify probably coming soon to youtube um within the next few months uh, I have the ability to do it. I want to do it. I just trying to build uh, enough of a brand to where the time that it's going to take uh, for YouTube to really get get that um, launch going. I have a pro wrestling tea store, prowrestlingtees.com slash Matthew Priest. Uh, the Rambles, the Gappleman shirts, the only one in there waiting on design submissions to be approved. I've submitted quite a few um, alive and kicking. Uh, my old wrestling uh, Matthew Priest wrestling shirt logo. Um, also a few other from the podcast, so maybe a Joe Machine versus Jeepers Monroe uh, match outline has to come up next, but who knows. Uh, Gambling with the Grappleman shirts also submitted in there. Uh, Horsecock watching was the latest. That, I believe, is going to be denied, unfortunately, but uh, good times on that show. Elite Edition, me and Nick Braxton, check it out. Check out everything under the Ramblers of the Grappleman Network. Uh, again, I appreciate all you fans for listening. It's went a little longer than I anticipated, but rather than doing four solo episodes, crammed them all here into one hour-long episode for you. So thanks again. We'll catch you later on down the trail. And stay classy, stay cunning, stay confident. Rumblings of a Rebelman.